0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and
1: happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, Massage, and more at myHIH.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour I'm checking in with journalists in our neighboring Midwest states. Uh, we'll find out what's top of mind this election eve in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois. Uh, Missouri. um, Starting off with Nebraska, uh, we'll find out how their concerns may be different than ours in Iowa, which parties likely to hold power in the coming years in those states, and uh, what's up with our neighbors in general politically. It's a snapshot of Midwest states on the eve of this election 2022. Daniel Wheaton is the Midwest Newsroom's data journalist based in Lincoln, Nebraska. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? Well, I just want to remind our listeners that the Midwest Newsroom is a partnership between NPR and member stations providing investigative journalism and in-depth reporting with a focus on Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. Uh, And you just published a a piece this morning. I want to talk about that in a minute. But acquaint us here in Iowa with uh, what's going on there generally, Uh, an overview, big picture overview of politics in 2022 in Nebraska.
2: So in Nebraska, the biggest race that's going on is definitely the governor's race in which Pete Ricketts, the current governor, cannot run again because of term limits. So we have Jim Pillen who more or less was essentially chosen by the Republican establishment to be Pete Ricketts' successor, who's going against Carol Blood, who is a state senator from Bellevue, which is a suburb of Omaha near an air force base. It's very likely that Jim Pillen will win given that there are just so many more Republicans than Democrats in Nebraska, so that's certainly the race that most people are looking at. But just like Iowa, all of our house races are up for re-election as well, and Congressional Districts 1 and 2 are looking a little more tight than they have in the past, while it's very likely that Adrian Smith will win in the third congressional district. That as well as the like elections for the Nebraska legislature, which, as you probably know, the Nebraska legislature is unique in which it's the only unicameral in the United States. So fewer people in this legislative body total of 49 but if republicans get 33 senators they will have a filibuster proof supermajority so they can pass whatever they want including an abortion ban
1: mm. okay let's let's drill down a little bit on the governor's race which you mentioned at the outset uh, there jim Pillen, carol uh, blood, the Democrat uh, there. Tell us a little bit about the issues there, and uh, th- this news piece uh, you put out today, the Midwest Newsroom piece, just published that uh, debates uh, uh, did not figure into this matchup, did they?
2: Yeah, uh, Nebraska, like many um, states with essentially one-party control, it's the primary that really determines who is likely to be going to be the you know main candidate for the party in power, and in this case it was Jim Pillen. And throughout that, Jim Pillen kind of focused on a lot of the many things that Pete Ricketts also focused on during his time as governor, just finding ways to reduce taxes, to make sure that parents' voices are heard when it comes to issues with education. In many ways, the Jim Pillen administration is somewhat an extension of the Pete Ricketts administration, it, assuming that Jim Pillen wins, simply because they agree on so many of the same issues. It does seem like Nebraska's do kind of value that consistency there and it's worth noting that jim Pillen currently is a member of the board of regents at the university of nebraska system so he does have some inside view in the ins and outs of higher education within nebraska and it's also worth noting that the university system is the largest employer in the state so that is a relatively high profile job so going to an even high profile job if he manages to win in this But um, he did follow a number of kind of popular talking points over the past several years. Um, He initially proposed a ban on critical race theory in the university system, which didn't actually pass the Board of Regents, but it certainly elevated Jim Pillen in the eyes of many Trump supporters and people who you know, maybe following the kind of Nebraska politics, but don't necessarily follow what's going on the Board of Regents. And that certainly elevated his name recognition across the state. But in many ways, Carol Blood, his opponent, has more kind of focused, more nuanced solutions to when it comes to dealing with Nebraska's problems. Because just like many other Midwestern states, Nebraska struggles with keeping people to stay in Nebraska after they graduate from the university system or any other higher education within the state. So Carol Blood was looking at unique ways of incentivizing people to stay in Nebraska, be it, you know, paying off student loans if they complete a two-year degree with it at a certain time, or, you know, similar things that can actually encourage Nebraskans to stay in the state while many people, mostly from Lincoln and Omaha— choose to go to the coast, which I imagine is the same thing that kind of happens in Iowa. But it's been interesting because there hasn't been that dialogue between those two candidates. But it is worth noting that Jim Pillen and Carol Blood did agree to a series of Q&As with the Nebraska Examiner, which is a member of the state's newsroom, which covers politics in Nebraska. So there was some semblance of a dialogue there, but obviously not the kind of, you know, event that we're used to in these kind of races.
1: Yeah, whomever is elected to governor in Nebraska— Will be choosing uh, Ben Sass's replacement. Last week, uh, we heard in our news the University of Florida said its Board of Trustees had voted to select. Uh, uh, your senator there, Ben Sass, a uh, uh, Republican, as their next university president. Uh, he was already expected to resign from the U.S. Senate by the end of the year. Why wasn't this a surprise? Uh,
2: how has Sass fit into the current GOP or not? Yes, yeah, Sass has always been somewhat interesting when it comes to Nebraska politics and Republican politics in general. He's always kind of been a firebrand and willing to speak out against President Trump um, a number of times uh, during that administration. But it does seem like he. He maybe is at odds with how the Senate functions right now, which makes sense why he may be seeking, uh, you know, this different mode of employment. But it is very likely that if Jim Pillen does win the governor's race, it's likely that he will nominate Pete Ricketts as, as his replacement, as Pete Ricketts told Politico that he is interested in taking that seat. But it does seem like Sass is kind of turning away from kind of his time as a member of the political class in Nebraska, and it is interesting to kind of see him kind of diminish in that sense
1: Mm hmm. Let's talk about one of the big issues this election cycle. The landmark Dobbs decision by the U.S. Supreme Court announced back in June held that the Constitution of the U.S. does not confer a right to abortion federally. Um, So now it's up to individual states. Uh, What is the current law in Nebraska? Is that likely to change based on this election?
2: Yeah, so right now abortion is illegal in Nebraska up to 20 weeks. And right now there are only clinics in Lincoln and Omaha. So if you're out state, you do would have to either travel to a different state or all the way to our major metro areas to receive abortion care. So what boiled down to in the last year after this all went through is that there weren't enough Republicans within the unicameral to stop a filibuster. Had there been enough votes, there would have been a special section, and it was likely that an abortion ban would have been passed. But because there were, I believe, two votes short, that never happened. So that's why, depending on exactly what goes on in Lincoln and Omaha for the majority of the state senators within those two cities, if Republicans eke out enough votes, if they get to that number of 33, they will have a filibuster-proof majority. And it is likely that that's kind of the bar for the legislature to pass an abortion ban. Given that there are some Republicans who, you know, are, are a bit more liberal on, on abortion and are willing to kind of keep the status quo as it is, given that the twenty week ban is, you know, a ban. Nebraska has always been on the more side of have some restrictions on abortions. But it really down comes down to whether or not Republicans can win in those major metro areas, which is why we've seen increased campaign spending in those two major areas. So a lot of Nebraskans have been seeing a lot of political ads for the past several weeks, given the contentious nature of this issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Nebraska has three U.S. House seats in Congress. Uh uh, drill down on those a bit. Tell us more, please.
2: Yeah, so one thing to kind of set the stage is that just like everyone else, uh, Nebraska had redistricting occur in 2020. And the two districts that represent Lincoln and Omaha have become slightly more dense just because there are more people in those cities. So we kind of go one by one first. So in the congressional district one, we have Mike Flood, who is currently uh, the representative for the Lincoln and surrounding areas. He was uh, he won a special election to fill the remainder of Jeff Fortenberry's term after he resigned earlier this year, and he's up against Patty Pansing Brooks, who is another state senator, a Democrat. And during the special election, which occurred in June, Patty Panzing Brooks got closer than expected. Mike Flood won with a margin of 43% to 46%, but that was relatively closer to the Dobbs decision. So it is likely that the increase in turnout that we saw during that time was kind of a result. Of that news, which certainly was a political shock to Nebraska and the rest of the United States. But given the redistricting, the focus isn't just entirely on Lincoln in the first congressional district. It also is part of the Omaha suburbs. Redistricting has put the Offutt Air Force Base into Congressional District 1, and those military voters have a lot of economic concerns. And because of that, you've seen both of the candidates make sure that they include the military in their discussions because they want to make sure that they feel connected to those voters and naturally when it comes to redistricting some people who aren't listening to River to River or following the Midwest newsroom may not know they're in a different district so it's kind of interesting to see them always uh, have information on the military base and Bellevue just because some people may not know that the redistricting has changed which district they are in. And then in Omaha, we have incumbent Don Bacon, who is being challenged by State Senator Tony Vargas. Uh, The Congressional District 2 is also interesting because it's known as the blue dot. It voted for Biden in 2020, and Nebraska, along with Maine, is one of two states that split their electoral votes. So earlier last year, I worked with Fred Knapp, who covers the legislature, to to see if the new Congressional District 2 was the one that voted in 2020. Would Biden have won? The answer is yes, but the lead would have shrunk from 22,000 votes to 6,000 votes. So this means that there are more registered Republicans in Congressional District 2, but the margin is relatively close. That's why Don Bacon has been slightly more moderate than some Republicans, because he does have to appeal to some of those you know, conservative Democrats and some of those more liberal Republicans mm-hmm. and, of course, independents. So just po- kind of towing the party line doesn't necessarily always work for Don Bacon. But just like the rest of the country, the discussion has largely been on economics with both Vargas and Bacon attacking the opposing sides on their strategy for how to deal with this strange economic situation we're in currently. But it, it will be interesting to see if District 2 does elect a Democrat because it has always been a politically contentious part of the state, just given that Omaha is the largest city and its suburbs do have that political power. Okay, one more district, uh,
1: District 3 in Nebraska, uh, short and sweet. What's that look like?
2: Well, it's very likely that Adrian Smith will win. Uh, he has won every election nine in a row. And if he does win, he will become the most senior con- member of the congressional delegation in Nebraska. And he says he wants to become the chair of the Ways and Means Committee if Republicans take the House back. Okay. And finally,
1: in the legislature, in congressional races, uh, talk a little bit about election deniers uh, in Nebraska, those who believe the false claims of election fraud in in 2020 spread by the former president and many uh, GOP candidates running for office.
2: Yeah, so we really haven't seen much of that within people who are running for office, which is a good sign when it comes to defending democracy. Although there was a bit of a revolt in May with the Republican Party in Nebraska, in which many election deniers now hold some positions of power within the Nebraska GOP. So it remains to be seen what will what we'll be seeing once the results get in and whether or not those in the Nebraska GOP, you know, choose to deny whatever results happen if they don't go their way.
1: Yeah. And, and finally, I see there in Nebraska, you are voting on something that we in Iowa um, have as a new part of our elections. You're, you're voting on, uh, it's on the ballot, whether photo IDs will be part of uh, voting there, right?
2: Yes, that's true. That was pushed by a state senator, uh, Julie Slama, and it is very likely that Nebraskans will choose to include voter ID as part of the electoral process.
1: Okay, Daniel Wheaton, the Midwest Newsroom's data journalist based in Lincoln. Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's River to River on this election eve from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. What's up with our neighbors? That's what we're asking this hour. A snapshot of Midwest states surrounding us on the eve of the 2022 midterms. Brian Baxt has been with us before. He's political reporter with Minnesota Public Radio News uh, based in St. Paul. Hello again, Brian. Hi, Ben. Uh, let's start off with this. What races are most watched up there in Minnesota?
3: We've got a slate of statewide races that are going to be very close, starting with the governor's race uh, here in Minnesota. We've got a Democratic governor and have had one for the last 12 years. And and Democrats have never had a run of power this long in the governor's mansion. So Tim Walz is swimming against the national tide and against some history here. But on the other side, Republicans haven't done much uh, successfully here in the state in the past uh, decade or so they haven't won a statewide race in 16 years this race is Mm. has been fought on crime inflation abortion much like you're seeing around the country uh right now the uh the prevailing sense is that tim walls had a narrow edge coming into election day republicans have been closing and they're good at closing in statewide races here other than that the attorney general's race another big one that we're watching democrats have held it for more than 50 years but Republicans, they feel like this is their time to, to take it over. They're, they're running a crime-heavy campaign with first-time candidate Jim Schultz, who's trying to take on DFL Attorney General Keith Ellison. You remember Keith Ellison is the one who prosecuted Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd murder. And so police groups have lined up against him. Mm mm-hmm. um,
1: Let's talk a little bit about what has given Republicans a boost uh, uh, there in in Minnesota, uh, a Democratic stronghold. What have been the issues you said, crime um, uh, that have perhaps swayed some voters there in Minnesota?
3: That's right. Crime. Uh, you know, we've seen an uptick of crime in the in the Twin Cities in the past couple of years. We had the civil unrest following the George Floyd murder. Uh, of course, COVID-19 and the, and the measures taken to stop COVID-19, they weren't very popular outside the Twin Cities. So Tim Walz, who came into to office on a greater Minnesota, one Minnesota theme, he's had to really uh, patch up some some wounds in greater Minnesota. And Republicans feel like they're going to have presidential level turnout beyond the Twin Cities area. The question is whether they can overcome the Democratic uh prowess lately in the suburban and urban areas that's where they've really run up the score
1: Mm -hmm. what's the picture in the minnesota legislature
3: we have one of the few divided legislatures in the country democrats have a very narrow hold on the minnesota house republicans have an equally narrow hold on the minnesota senate redistricting uh, gave both sides something to cling to i mean minnesota had a a court-drawn map so it wasn't one of these that was drawn by a partisan body So there are opportunities for both sides to expand their hold, but they're also looking at some areas where they might give up ground to the other party. Either way, uh, people are predicting that Minnesota is going to have a very tight legislature next year where the parties are separated by maybe one, two, or three seats. Uh, Who's in control? That's a great question, and, and we hope to know more come Wednesday morning. Right. When you
1: have those tight numbers in in both chambers, does that mean generally translate into
3: cooperation between the parties? No, we've seen uh, quite a bit of gridlock. In fact, uh, the, the legislature had about $9 billion in surplus money last year, and most of that was left on the table in May when they couldn't agree to Uh, ways to cut taxes or increase money for schools and public safety. It's been a lingering question throughout the campaign. Uh, Governor Tim Walz has suggested special sessions to to divvy up the money, but that hasn't really come to pass so the next legislature will have quite a bit of money at its disposal even though the economy has been slipping a little bit there there's been uh, there's a lot of money in the bank and there's a lot of money in its rainy day reserve so even if the recession comes minnesota should be in a decent position come 2023.
1: let's move to the federal level brian what about congressional races most watched in minnesota
3: yeah, we've got eight seats. We've nearly hung on to eight seats in the, the latest reapportionment. This time, only one seat is truly in play, and that's in the South Suburban metro area, uh, the 2nd Congressional District. Angie Craig is the incumbent. She's a Democrat. She's running against Tyler Kissner, a former Marine, who ran against her last time. And it was a, a two-point race. The difficulty there is there's a third-party candidate on the ballot on, on running on a marijuana slate, but this candidate died last month. But this uh, Paula Overby, her name will still appear on the ballot. Last time, the the same thing happened. It's incredible that the same thing happened in the same district where the marijuana candidate died prior to the election. That candidate got 6% of the vote last time. Uh, Angie Craig knows that she really can't afford much slippage if she's going to go back to Washington. It's been a very expensive race, a very nasty race, and there are wall-to-wall ads uh, from, from these two candidates, sometimes appearing three or four in a block, when people turn on their TVs.
1: Mm -hmm. We've seen so many states uh, switch to uh, make uh, cannabis legal. Uh, What does it look like in in Minnesota? Is it trending that way as well?
3: The, The Minnesota House passed a cannabis legalization bill, but the Minnesota Senate didn't even take it up. The governor, the current governor, Tim Walz, supports it uh minnesota is not one of these states where there are many ballot propositions that come to pass so this one seems like it's got to come through the legislature and the makeup of the legislature next year is going to determine the fate of legalization push
1: Mm -hmm. um any ballot measures for minnesotans
3: not this year uh it's it's purely candidate driven uh campaigns heading into this this election tomorrow and uh like I said, we're bracing for some pretty close races. We've seen some recounts in the past, and so we're not ruling out that that's going to be a possibility in one or two or maybe even more of these races.
1: Tell us a little bit about what has been a national, a major national theme in these elections. And I, I see that according to an uh, MPR news analysis, one, nearly one in four Republicans running for the Minnesota legislature this year have rejected or questioned the outcome of the 2020 election. Uh, Talk about that a little bit. How, How much has that been present in the campaign?
3: That's right. And a lot of those Republicans are running in seats where they're likely to be elected. So a lot of them will come into office looking to change voter laws ahead of the 2024 election. The Secretary of State's race has been an expensive race, an unusually expensive race in Minnesota. Uh, Democratic incumbent Steve Simon and his allies have spent about $6 million trying to keep hold of that office. Uh, His chief opponent is... uh, Kim Crockett, and she has been in that camp where she's been skeptical of the 2020 result, and saying that the state needs to crack down on uh, voter integrity. She wants photo ID at the polls, and she she says that they should have a long, we should have a shorter early voting window. Minnesota has about a 46-day voting window, uh, so so that one is an important one. Uh, Steve Simon has, like I said, he's he's had more money spent on his behalf, and there have been quite a bit of ads suggesting that. Uh, If Kim Crockett is elected, Minnesota might go backwards in terms of voting accessibility. Mm -hmm.
1: Public education in Minnesota has always been held up as a model, I understand, education funding uh, driving some Democratic messaging.
3: That's right. The uh, Republican nominee for governor, Scott Jensen, has suggested that maybe there's too much money going into education or going to the wrong places. He suggested that he might seek to cut some education or to allow more public money to go to private uh, tuition credits or, or some other type of voucher system. But on the flip side, Scott Jensen is raising student achievement. He's brought up the, the academic losses during the, the post-pandemic time and since we've seen test scores sliding. Minnesota's rankings in the national uh, uh, reading and math scores ha- has slipped a little bit. Um, it, it's, it's been an issue that both sides have grabbed onto just in different ways. Republicans are also bringing up parental control. There's quite a bit of school board races in Minnesota where conservative groups have really made a, a concerted push to take over school boards. So that's one of the areas that we're watching down the ballot.
1: Yeah, that's something that uh, Minnesota has uh, in common with Iowa. The Min- Even the, the school boards becoming sort of nationalized in terms of politics and, and often very contentious. School, school board meetings used to be, um, rather sleepy, if I can yeah. put it that
3: way, Brian. No more, That's no true. more. That's in some true. cases, right? No, no. In, in some of these areas, there are slates of candidates who are are looking to push push out uh, longtime school board members, some of whom have teachers union backing, and so it's a really big tussle between the teachers union and the conservative groups who are pushing this parental rights theme.
1: Brian, any vital points that we missed?
3: I don't think so. I we're, we're just hoping that everything goes smoothly and maybe we, we can avoid a recount or multiple recounts uh, and, and let the campaign season end on Tuesday.
1: Brian Bax is political reporter with NPR News. He's based in St. Paul. Brian, good to chat with you. Thank you so much, and uh, hope you survive uh, this uh, next these next few days in good shape. You too, Ben.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: And we're back with more of this edition of River to River from IPR News. Asking this hour, what's up with our neighboring states on the eve of this 2022 election? In Wisconsin, Republicans stand on the verge of total veto-proof power. Let's talk with Sean Johnson. He's Capitol Bureau Chief at Wisconsin Public Radio. Hello again, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us in a very busy election season. Unlike Iowa, your state is a battleground state in the national scene, yet uh, Republicans, as I just mentioned, in your states in Wisconsin, close to capturing super majorities in the state legislature. Let's start there. How has the GOP managed this?
5: It's kind of been a process that began a decade ago. There was a a huge 2010 Republican wave election that hit very hard in Wisconsin. That same year, Republican Governor Scott Walker won election that let Republicans draw a legislative map that helped them, you know, cement majorities for the past decade. Also meant that they were in power in the legislature when redistricting rolled around again this past year. And so the new map that they've drawn is slightly more Republican than the last map. And that has put them within a few seats of potentially winning a two-thirds supermajority in the legislature. And that's really significant in a state where our governor, Democratic Governor Tony Evers, vetoed a record number of bills this past legislative session.
1: Before we talk about the implications, if that happens, let's talk about the governor's race. Tony Evers, Democrat facing Republican Tim Michaels, uh, what does that race look like?
5: It looks extremely close. And in Wisconsin, I think we've just gotten used to races being extremely close. But Evers won by about 30,000 votes four years ago, just a little more than a percentage point. Our last two races for president in 2020 and 2016 were decided by around 20,000 votes, both less than a percentage point. And we don't know exactly what kind of year this is going to be as we are speaking right now but it looks like it could be another one of those races it's just based on the polling which has just been exceptionally close here throughout the cycle and especially in the closing days of the race I think it's anyone's guess who's going to win in the race for governor this year
1: OK, let's talk about the implications uh, quickly. Let's say the, the Democratic incumbent uh, Evers hangs on, but he has a super majority of Republicans in the legislature to face. I guess the other one is Tim Michaels wins the governorship and then it's a clean sweep for the Republicans. Well, what, what can you tell us about implications there as you ponder the scenarios?
5: So if Tony Evers wins, I will say that it probably is going to be an uphill battle for Republicans to win sixty six seats in the state assembly if if a Democrat does well statewide, they would have to really exceed expectations in a handful of assembly districts where Democrats are favored to win that said it it could happen you could have a democratic governor in a veto proof majority in which case they would pass a lot of controversial stuff that he would veto, and they would get another shot at. You know, overriding his veto, which would require them keeping all of their 66 members together in the state Senate, all of their 22 or 23 senators together. And every issue would be drama, basically, if that were to happen, because you you would have that showdown each time. If
1: mm-hmm. you
5: had uh, a Republican governor, it's probably not going to matter whether the assembly has 66 seats or 62, you know, it's, they're on the same page on a lot of stuff. And so mm-hmm. the policy implications uh, right now are huge. The agenda that Tim Michaels has talked about includes ideas like completely lifting the enrollment and in income limits for our private school voucher program. This started out as something that was just in Milwaukee. It's now statewide, but this would say that it doesn't matter. There's no limit on the number of kids who can be in it. And there's no limit to what your family can earn to have taxpayer funding go to private, often religious schools.
1: And, and also, would the Republicans, uh, with that amount of power, likely to further make sort of election law changes ahead of 2024?
5: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's another big thing, I I would say, uh, as you look at kind of the big categories where Republicans could make seismic changes in state government, election laws would certainly be, you know, at the top of that list. They they sent, Republican lawmakers sent Tony Evers around 20 election-related bills this past session that the governor vetoed. They have said that if Uh, Tim Michaels wins, they're going to send those bills to his desk and he's going to sign them. There's also the possibility, though, that if they have a Republican governor with the Republican legislature, they can do more. I mean, they could look at um, scaling back absentee voting, uh, which is something that was suggested in, um, you know, we had we had an investigation, a Republican led investigation here into the 2020 election by a former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman. One of the things that he suggested was looking back at uh, looking at prioritizing in-person voting, scaling back absentee voting. So that'd be a big step that they could potentially take. Um, I think another thing that you would see them do is change the agency that runs elections here. We have right now the Wisconsin Elections Commission. It's run by a board which is split between three Republican appointees and three Democratic appointees. So it's hard to get a lot of controversial stuff through this elections agency. That was by design. But if Republicans are running everything, they could say, you know, we want to structure the board in a way that gives our voices, Republican voices, more control. And they'd be writing the laws. To Michaels would be signing them. There wouldn't be anything stopping them from doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. We are running out of time. We have to get to two more points here, the implications of the Dobbs. Mm-hmm decision in Wisconsin, depending on on the outcome of this election?
5: Uh, What happened in Wisconsin is after the Dobbs decision, we had an 1849 ban on abortion that went back into effect. Uh, Abortion providers uh, stopped providing abortions after that decision. Uh, However, our governor, uh, Tony Evers, has said that he would grant clemency to anybody charged For violating that ban, and our attorney general, a Democrat, Josh Call, has said he won't charge anyone under that law. And so, if Republicans win, uh, you know that pledge to grant clemency uh, from Tony Evers would go away. If he had a Republican attorney general, then you could see the state begin to charge people for violating the ban. And I think, you know, as as long as Republicans are in control, you're certainly not going to see a move away from that ban to to reinstating abortion rights. And so it has definitely charged up the Democratic electorate this time around.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, let's make sure we hit on the Senate race. It's uh, in Wisconsin, one of the nation's most closely watched contests, uh, Democrats hoping their candidate Uh, barnes uh, will flip the seat in order to maintain or perhaps even expand a slim majority in the u.s senate Uh, republicans hoping to keep their man the incumbent uh, ron johnson in office and and take control of the u.s senate uh, by way of uh, those other senate races being watched arizona georgia nevada Uh, what does it look like right now if you look at
5: the trend of polling since our uh, primary election in August, it is definitely gone in Ron Johnson's direction. That said, recent polling has been very close in that race, not quite as close as the governor's race, but close. Uh, one thing you've seen there is that Mandela Barnes was able to win the Democratic primary which was thought to be pretty competitive. And then at the end, all the candidates kind of dropped out because they, um, I mean, Barnes was just seen as the, the runaway favorite there, partly because of his kind of progressive bona fides. You know, he had a, a very strong liberal record. That record has been used against him in the general election in, uh, you know, a massive Republican ad blitz Especially from outside groups that were funded uh, largely by uh, a couple of uh, Wisconsin-based billionaires, Diane Hendricks and Richard Uline. Richard Uline actually from Illinois, but uh, runs a business in Wisconsin, and they have hit hit Barnes on that record uh, very aggressively. Um, it the the thing about Johnson is he has not run a tepid campaign or a cautious campaign. He has alienated a number of voters in the middle. If you look at his long term approval ratings in Wisconsin, uh, but it, it charges up his base. And the thing is, he has been able to bring Mandela Barnes approval numbers down. And so, as as you know, we talk right now. You would probably say that Ron Johnson is the favorite in that race. But again, it's very close.
1: Okay. So much to watch in our neighbor to the north, Sean Johnson, Capitol Bureau chief at Wisconsin Public Radio. Sean, hold on tight. Election day is tomorrow. Take care.
5: All right. You too. Thank you.
1: It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour checking in with states bordering Iowa on this 2022 election eve. Herb Trix joins us again, news director with WVIK, the Quad Cities NPR station. Hi, Herb.
4: Uh, hi, Ben. Well, thanks for having me on today.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. The most watched uh, races in Illinois, I suppose the the governor's race would have to be in that category.
4: Well, at the top of the ticket right, it's a uh, Democratic incumbent, H.B. Pritzker. He's ending his first term. He's uh, heir to the Hyatt Hotel fortune. So, uh, oddly enough, he has a big money advantage. His opponent, the Republican, is a state senator, a farmer from far southern Illinois, a Trump backer, and I guess you could call him very conservative, Darren Bailey. And they've been talking a lot, the uh, H.P. Pritzker has been talking about the economy because it's in fairly good shape in Illinois right now. And uh, State Senator Bailey has been talking about crime, especially in Chicago, uh, because that's where a third or more of the state's voters live, and he's been talking, uh, calling, calling Chicago a hellhole. And uh,
1: various other terms like that wow, using those words, you said oh, he's yeah. a he's a trump backer uh, i mean there's there's a spectrum there. How much of a trump backer is well, the I State think Senator? he's
4: more along the lines of you know he w- was happy with the endorsement of uh, former President Donald Trump, but he doesn't get into election denial or anything quite quite that far. He's more like you know trying to appeal to the uh the many Trump voters in Illinois.
1: Mm -hmm. What have been in the gubernatorial race the most contentious issues? Uh, If it's like the national narrative, the Democrats are are running on uh, abortion and, well, threat to democracy, uh, Republicans on inflation and and crime. Is it similar in this gubernatorial race?
4: Well, abortion and crime have been major issues. Uh, State Senator Bailey has been talking a lot about crime, especially in the Chicago area where there's been some notorious crimes in recent months. Governor Pritzker has been talking about the Illinois economy that's in fairly decent shape. Uh, Some money, some ARPA money helped the state pay off some bills, and even there was a property tax rebate that uh, was uh, sent to all Illinois residents back in September. And if you were a bit cynical, you might think, oh, the timing is very interesting. But at any rate, uh, some of the money came back. So at least the economy in Illinois, unlike the nation, Looks like it's in fairly decent shape these days.
1: Mm-hmm. What about the Illinois legislature? What are you watching there?
4: Probably the overall. We're just watching to see if the Democrats lose their supermajorities in both the state house and state senate. My guess is that Democrats will keep their supermajorities, but there might be a seat or two here and there.
1: Let's pivot over to the U.S. House. Of course, uh, Illinois far too many districts to go through, but are there any that jump out uh, worth mentioning at this point?
4: Well, one of the competitive districts is the one that includes the Quad Cities. Um, it's sort of competitive in the same way that uh, a couple of uh, eastern Iowa districts are, and even your third district. It's seen as um, you know control of the house will hinge on what happens in these districts. The 17th includes uh, all of the Quad Cities, a whole lot of rural Illinois, but it also includes parts of uh, Rockford and Peoria. For some Democratic votes. Remember, the Democrats drew the new district line, so they wanted to make mm-hmm. it uh, fairly safe. Uh, we have a Democrat, a very interesting candidate. He's a former TV meteorologist, but he um, worked in both Rockford and the Quad City, so he had some name recognition in the district. And he was able to beat five other candidates in the primary back in the spring. Um, kind of a surprise there, because the other candidates were all very solid you know, uh, state legislators and former military people and all sorts of folks like that. The Republican is a woman named Esther Joy King, a lawyer and Army reservist who narrowly lost two years ago to a five-term incumbent Democrat. So she got her name recognition and got some, uh, you know, made some friends two years ago and is coming back to do it again. And if the Republicans have a very good day tomorrow, then she could be one of those elected to the house.
1: One more point, quickly before we say goodbye, Herb. Uh, I understand in Illinois a constitutional amendment uh, to um, uh, give workers the rights, uh, to, the right to unionize, put it in the Illinois Constitution. Mm-hmm. Well, what it would guarantee the right to
4: collective bargaining, mainly for state employees, because private employees are mainly covered by federal agencies. But it's one of those things that's similar to the gun rights amendment in Iowa. Um, Collective bargaining rights are not really in danger now in Illinois, and gun rights are not really in danger in Iowa right now. But it's more like insurance for the future.
1: Very good. Uh, Thank you for catching us up on the politics um, as of this midterm election. Herb Trix, News Director at WVIK uh, NPR station in the Quad Cities. Until next time, Herb, thank you, and uh, uh, be well uh, during the next few days. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, checking in today with neighboring Midwest states. Uh, Missouri, let's turn to the south. Uh, Missouri used to be a bellwether state. No more. Let's talk with Jason Rosenbaum. He's politics correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Hi, Jason.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being on. Before we get into some nuts and bolts of the most watched races in Missouri, as I mentioned, Missouri used to be a bellwether state. Give us some context for current Missouri politics, which has led it to be deeply red.
0: The biggest reason that Missouri has become such a Republican state is the collapse of the Missouri Democratic Party in rural Missouri as well as suburban Missouri. Back when I started covering politics in 2006, Democrats regularly won statewide elections because they forged together this urban-suburban-rural coalition, but the math doesn't work for them if they just have St. Louis, Kansas City, and Columbia, and they have not been doing well in highly populated suburbs that have a lot of conservative voters, and they've been doing really poorly in rural Missouri especially Northeast Missouri, which borders Iowa, as well as Southeast Missouri, which borders Arkansas and Tennessee. Until they can figure out a way to piece that coalition back together, they're going to lose statewide elections for the foreseeable future.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are the, the top races in this election?
0: The top races include a U.S. Senate race between Republican Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Democrat Trudy Bush Valentine. It's it's the top race because it is at the top of the the ticket, but it's not a nationally targeted contest because the state has gone so. Republican Schmidt is widely seen as the person who's favored in this contest, but Trudy Bush Valentine, who is the daughter of former Anheuser Bush chairman uh, Gussie Bush, has been spending a lot of her own money and has really been trying to hit Schmidt on the fact that a Missouri now basically bans most abortions, and Schmidt was supportive of that, as well as the repeal of a foreign ownership of farm land law in 2013, which was done as a way to allow for Smithfield to continue to remain in Missouri. So it's been, it's been interesting in some respects, but I, I think everybody here thinks that Schmidt is highly favored tomorrow.
1: In the U.S. House from Missouri, any competitive races?
0: There is one competitive race in suburban St. Louis between Republican Congresswoman Ann Wagner and Democratic challenger Trish Gunby. It, it's, it's competitive in the sense that it might be decided by less than 10 percentage points. But Missouri's congressional <laughs> districts were redrawn actually this year that we were one of the last states to actually finish redistricting to make pretty much every congressional seat at this point in time not terribly competitive. So that may change over time. The second district, which includes parts of the St. Louis suburbs, is expected to become a competitive district sometime down the road. But I think that Wagner is widely favored, especially if it is a Republican wave election, as many people are assuming.
1: As a deeply conservative state now, I wonder how prevalent among Missourians is the belief that the 2020 election was stolen, a belief, of course, not supported by any facts.
0: I think it is pretty prevalent here. Missouri is a state that went for Donald Trump in 2016 by almost 20 percentage points. It went for Trump by less than that four years later. But if you go to parts of rural Missouri especially, you have a lot of ordinary voters who are very connected to the former president, and they believe his untruths about the election being stolen in 2020.
1: Mm-hmm. And finally, let's talk about what Missourians will be voting on in, as a ballot measure, uh, further expanding their cannabis program it, to include recreational use.
0: Yes. Missouri legalized marijuana in 2018 for medicinal use. The, the most hotly contested ballot item in Missouri this year involves expanding that to adult use, which would mean that if you don't have a medical card, you could go to a marijuana dispensary or or cannabis dispensary and, and purchase cannabis products. It is being supported primarily by the existing license holders because under this amendment, if you have a medical marijuana license, you could use that for adult use. And it's almost assured that the existing license holders are going to make a pretty sizable amount of money off of this. And that is primarily the source of contention here. There's a feeling that this is kind of like a an inside deal that is going to benefit well-connected people within the cannabis industry. But kind of the counterpoint is that you have to do that in order to make sure that the, the rollout of adult use is, is seamless, because if you just start issuing recreational or, or adult use licenses to new businesses it could create a lot of uncertainty and chaos there's a lot of money on the pro side but there is a lot of opposition to this it'll be one to watch tomorrow
1: okay we'll see jason whether uh, missouri becomes yet another state to legalize recreational cannabis jason rosenbaum is the politics correspondent with st louis public radio jason thank you for your insights thank you
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: And that does it for today's program on this election eve. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman and Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.